I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll end up with a richer understanding of the title at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, former adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for anyone out there who isn't trafficking in rare books, Foxed Page might be something of a mystery. Foxing is just those little brown spots that you sometimes see on the pages of really old, beloved books. A couple of tips before we dive in to this incredible novel, The All of It by Jeanette Hain. So as usual, the seminar, the lecture will be delivered today in three chunks. Segment one will have no spoilers. And in that first 30 minutes, we will discuss why I think you should read this book. We'll have a quick rundown of the biography of uh, Jeanette Hain, and then we will dive into the title, the frontismatter, and the first couple of paragraphs of the text. In segment two, for that half hour, we'll discuss the structure, the narrative voice, and how heavily she relies on her excellent dialogue. We'll talk about the voice of Edna in particular, and we'll talk about plot. In the third section, we will talk about the spareness that really belies a really incredible richness in the prose. We'll talk about her use of language, especially figurative language. We're going to discuss desire, which is a very important motif throughout the book. And then as always, we will look at the close of this brief genius novel. So we'll dive right in. We're gonna jump in today with this question of why I think this book is worth reading. So first of all, it is on a list that Louise Erdrich has pulled together of brief, perfect novels. And I think that's actually a pretty great description of this novel. It also came highly recommended as a novel that would fit really well into my recent Irish obsession. So first of all, I love a brief novel. Generally speaking, a novella is anything kind of 130, 140 pages and, or, or, or fewer. And then a, um, a, a novel novel, these are so arbitrary, it's so kind of American to want to have these definitions, but, but they're, they're helpful. So um, a novel is generally about 250. So a brief novel is gonna be somewhere in that span. I love a novella, um, it, it gets closer toward the short story where, where there's a lot more pressure on every single word, there's a lot more pressure on the prose. If we think of, um, you know, I can list off a few of my favorite novellas, Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton is an incredible sort of masterclass of the genre. I really love The Brief and Terrifying Reign of Phil by George Saunders. I love The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark. And Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger is one of my favorite books of all time. I really love the demands that a shorter novel will make on a writer simply because there is a bit more care. If you're looking at 900 pages of something, um, you know, there's going to be I think slightly lower expectations about every single word, whereas these really demand uh, the writer be absolutely sure of every single choice he or she is making. It is, this book is perfectly fitting into my Ireland, um, my recent obsession with Irish literature. For those of you who are not watching the, um, the YouTube channel, I, I like to think my outfit here is really evoking um, that, that Irish spring commercial. Remember from back in the day, that very handsome young man, um, I think he was wearing probably a fisherman's sweat, sweater, not a, not a black turtleneck, but the pea coat just seemed very Irish. Uh, Ireland continues to astound. 
this book does fit perfectly with my recent Irish obsession. I just wanted to, just for fun, I, in part of my literary sleuthing about Jeanette Hayne, I just looked up Irish writers and there were some surprises on this list. So George Bernard Shaw, who I've not read since high school, Bram Stoker of Dracula fame is Irish, Yeats, Joyce, of course, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis, and then we get into a slightly um, more recent Colm Toybean, uh, Colin McCann, Emma Donahue of Room fame, William Trevor, who's one of my very, very favorite writers, and Anne Wright. The list goes on and on and on. Of course, now we have Sally Rooney and Anna Burns. It's just astounding to me that a teeny little island the size of Ireland could island the size of Ireland, that sounded so strange to my ear, could generate such amazing literature. But I do think when we um, dig even a tiny bit into Irish history and we realize the amount of strife and the amount of difficulty that they have faced as a colonized country, you know, for the last 500 years, certainly in the last 150 years, the, um, the incredible religious strife and the incredible infighting and, and their post-colonial issues, it's really, um, it, it is a very fertile ground, I think, for both potatoes and for, uh, and for literature. I also, just like Ann Patchett mentions in the introduction of this novel, I love a novel with a priest in it. And it's exactly what Ann Patchett points out in the introduction. Priests are very much a, um, you know, they're they're sort of of the world. Well, they're they're of the world and they're not of the world. They are separate from the world. They live by their own rules. In fact, really pretty astounding, really pretty crazy rules. And yet they are um, the, the the sort of keepers of many many secrets. And they are um, you know these larger than life figures that get that sort of well they these days are inspiring a lot of um disgust and revulsion as they should in lots of ways but there is this sense of of them as being um, a very important fixture in communities who are harbin not harbingers they're, they're they're repositories of these secrets and so um i think part of what appeals to me is there is a real sense of like the gossip I mean, I really feel like maybe that's, you know, they're hearing all of this stuff. They really know all this stuff. Hopefully they're not, they're not churning any of it out. But you do have a sense that if you were an author and you could sit down and talk to a priest, you'd get some, some pretty good stories. This idea too of cloistered living and this idea of Catholicism, we see it in Mariette and Ecstasy, which is an amazing book by Ron Hansen. Of course, The Scarlet Letter is another incredible, um, incredible short novel. It's actually less short than you think, uh, if I recall. My favorite priest of all time, which I'm pulling from television here, not in fact from literature, is the sexy priest in Fleabag. I mean, that is just, wow, does that make for a juicy plot. So Jeanette Hayne is pulling together a few of my very favorite things here, and I hope that they also appeal to you, this Irish setting, this kind of condensed prose that we get in this brief novel, and then a really, um, you know, very sort of juicy setup where we have this important secret that is being confessed. And um, what we see happen is this really cool thing where the, the, the secret and the, the reception of the secret is much more about Father Declan 
than it is about our Edna. So you have this really interesting um, structural thing that happens where uh, our priest is the one who's really struggling with this news that in fact Edna is really not particularly conflicted about. So it, it, it's this very interesting play on, on morality and on judgment and on self-acceptance. It's just masterfully done. That is why I am recommending that you read it. So we're gonna talk quickly about the biography of Jeanette Hain. She does not have a Wikipedia entry, which is so weird. That really does not happen to me very often in my in my literary sleuthing, in my literary groupiness. But, um, you know, I did some, some more digging and I came up with several things. She was born in 1922 in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know about you, but I was fully, fully assuming that she was Irish, which was a very bad assumption on my part. She was not. She was born in Dayton, Ohio. Um, she was born of Dutch immigrant parents. Her mother was a very accomplished violinist. She herself got a music degree at the University of Washington, of Michigan. Wow, I don't know why I said Washington. University of Michigan, she got a BA in music and was a very, very uh, accomplished pianist. She became a professor, not a professor, a, a, like a professional, a pianist and also a piano teacher for 35 years. She did not start writing until her 60s. She married and had one daughter, but not until she was in her 60s did, uh, did she sit down to write. I don't know if her husband was Irish, but I do know that they lived in New York and also in Connemara, Ireland. So she was certainly someone who came by this Irish experience, honestly, if not uh, you know, in her blood. She died 10 days after her husband of 60 years, which I think is very romantic, uh, but there is a sense of, of someone who really understands a, you know, a close, intimate relationship. And someone, interestingly, I think, who was writing in her 60s with a story that really must have felt like she really needed to tell it in order to take on this entirely new occupation at 60 years old, and, and also someone who had had a lot of life experience, which I definitely value in an author. When she talks about writing in, in the two interviews that I was able to find from many, many moons ago, she talks about music theory as being fundamental, and I really like that idea. I love it when a writer can bring another sensibility, another sort of expertise to whatever it is that they're writing. And she talks very, very explicitly about how musical theory and musical structure is very important for her writing experience. She says, the structure of a work is the essence of it. It's discipline, if you will, which makes great freedom possible. Under the laws of structure, you have the freedom to work in the freest way imaginable. So I love this idea. I love the repetition there of, of free twice. And I love this idea of structure and discipline as leading to freedom and imagination. I mean, honestly, we could practically spend nine minutes just talking, I mean, 90 minutes talking about this little quotation here. Even the way that she, uh, you know, said this in the interview is just so beautifully done. So she's talking about structure and discipline as providing her this kind of, uh, this freedom. And I love that the end of that is the, the freest freedom imaginable. So she's not talking about imagination per se, but this idea of, of the most free uh, feeling imaginable. Okay, there's one other quote from the same interview, but honestly, it was so inspirational and so amazing. And frankly, 
a little contrary to the novel itself, I am going to save it until the very end of, uh, of the lecture because I really do think it's going to be uh, an excellent note to end on. That will be at the final, uh, final minutes of our 90 minutes. Okay, I'm gonna dive uh, relatively quickly into the title. So I really think this is an excellent title. I love the fact that it's a fragment. I like the choice of the, of the typesetter here to have it in lowercase all in lowercase with no capitalization. It's nice, I think, because it emphasizes the fact that this is a fragment. This is something that is taken. And I think it's important to, to realize that this idea of, of the all of it, of what Edna is confessing, you know, supposedly the all of it, is an impossible thing. It's fragmentary because there is no way she could express the all of it to anyone, let alone, you know, in a one time sitting with a priest. So there's this idea of it being a fragment, uh, not only because it, it's only a fragment of her life that she is sharing with him, but also this impossibility of being able, it, it sort of plays against the idea. You know, it's impossible to tell someone the all of it. So I, I like the fact that it's both, um, speaking to this idea of the fragment, but then again is also talking about how this is not, it, it's sort of like the opposite of the all of it is what she's going to tell him. I already, I, I like the, t the fact too um, that, that there is this real willingness and this eagerness on the part of Edna to, to reveal everything that the, in this confession, which is not in fact a confession, it's not a religious confession, it's simply, um, you know, expressing this thing to him so that he will understand. She's going to bear everything that he needs to know. Again, impossible to say the actual all of it, uh, but there is a sense of her willingness. So we're going to look quickly on page 24. So this is right after uh, Kevin has died. <clears throat> they knelt at the foot of the bed and separately prayed. When he stood again, Edna stirred, but remained at her kneel. I'll tell you the all of it now, father, she said, looking up at him. So again, I love this idea that what we have in the title is this fragment because there is this idea that, that, there, that the story is, as all stories are, is a fragment of a much larger life lived. But there's also, of course, this idea of her kneeling and her willingness. There's this idea of her as sort of a supplicant, meaning that she is, she's sort of, she's not prostrating herself before him, but she is kneeling down before him. He's standing. She's calling him father. There's this real sense of, of um, of, of duty and of sort of this filial uh, devotion to him. And, and she's look, literally looking up at him, looking up to him. So you have this idea of, of her as being sort of willing. I'm now going to tell you this, it's of her own volition. She has agency. And yet they're in this posture that very much makes him kind of the superior. He sits down and you know gets her a chair so that they can be on more equal footing. But what's nice about it is it very quickly becomes evident that Edna does not see herself as his inferior. She really wants him to understand, but not really so, so much for absolution and not for a confession, but simply so that he, he understands why it was so important to have the obituary read that they were married and then for him to have a sense of, 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 of seeing them as who they truly were, but again, not in an exculpatory way, just that, that she wants to be seen by him. Okay, and then we have pages 67 and 68. This is the second mention of the title. So down at the bottom of 67 and 68. Edna, he spoke at last. She started to make a gesture with both her hands as if closing a drawer. 
and straightening her back, impersonating attendants, said, that's the all of it, Father, the rest you know. So I love this when we have this idea of her standing. Um, we have this idea, she, he, in the beginning, she's kneeling, he's standing. And then here we have this idea, she started to make the gesture. She's, um, she's, she's not standing, sorry, I misread that. She pushes the drawer, which when you imagine that gesture, for those of you who are not watching me do the gesture, um, you can see that that's also pushing him away. She's sort of, she's saying, it's done. I'm closing the drawer on this. Also like back off a little bit is that gesture. And when she's straightening her back, she's sort of rising upward and impersonating attendance. So we have this, this sort of shift that happens, and it happens much earlier than this because Edna, again, has agency. She's the one who's in control of the narrative, but she's she understands to a certain extent that she needs to impersonate this kind of um, attendance. She needs to be an attendant of his. But very clearly with her voice, she says, that's the all of it, Father, the rest you know. So what's so interesting though, of course, is that this is page 67 of 145 pages. So we're not even quite to the middle of the book and she's like, okay, that's it, that's the all of it. And it's, as a reader, it's so interesting because the title of the book promises that you're going to hear the all of it. And then you have at the beginning, this other sort of proclamation when she's you know on her knees saying, I'm going to tell you the all of it. And then not even halfway through the book, you have this sense of like, okay, that's it. And as the reader, you're thinking, oh my God, we're halfway through the book. Like clearly we do not know the all of it. And what in some ways what's, well, what has come in the first half is very interesting. And what will come in the second half is uh, on some level even more interesting. And and frankly, the second half is the part that, that Father Declan is going to have to grapple with a bit more. But I just love it as a title because when you see the second iteration of it and you have this like okay that's the all of it there is this sense of like wait what there's so much more to hear not just in terms of half the book is still remaining for me here i feel bad for you guys on the kindle if you weren't paying attention maybe you thought it was over um for those of us with the paper book we were like oh wait what we have still half the book to read but also you have this sense of um you know expectation foiled a bit we have not heard all of it and when she says you know the rest you know he may have some idea of what he knows of the rest but he's only been there for five years they've been there for 35 i think for much longer in the town I will clarify that for the second session of this uh, lecture. But you do have this sense of him as as knowing some of the pieces, but not all of them. And so as the reader, you really, um, this reader, me, I was very excited to think like, gosh, we have another whole half of this novel to really dig into what it is that, that is going to be so difficult for the priest to grapple with. And also what does it look like? What does this, what does this transition into this community life look like? Okay, finally, we're gonna dive into the book itself. So we have this note about the author that we are gonna just skip right by. We have a lot to say about this very, very brief novel. And then we have the foreword by Ann Patchett, which I really did appreciate. I thought it was, um, I thought it was interesting. And then I love this author's note. Um, she talks about these different things in Ireland, which I think reinforced the idea that she was in fact Irish. You know, she's someone who lived in Connemara, I guess, half of the time. So you had this idea that this is something that she would know. If you just heard that, that was my dog like choking or something over there, one of, one of them. So she's describing what's happening uh, or giving us some very important footnotes. It's an interesting move because 
she's American. She was born in Ohio. She lived in New York. But but this this idea of giving an author's note beforehand instead of weaving this information into the story is a really interesting decision. I think one of the things that's happening here is she wants you to be fully immersed in that world. And if she had to explain, you know, what a what a beat in the river was or what a ghillie was or or the Ural, which the Ural, that part of it was so beautiful. We're going to we're going to get there. But I, I actually really liked this move because there's a certain sort of like I need to explain a few things to you and then you're going to be so immersed that that and this is fairly esoteric information. She's like giving you this kind of weird information about fishing, which on some level is really beside the point. And on some level, in fact, is a motif, we're going to look at this later, a motif that's, that's very, very important in terms of fishing as a stand-in for desire and for fate and for frustration and for patience. So she's giving you this kind of, you know, these terms of art, these weird words for Irish salmon fishing that, that seem totally extraneous. And, and it's, I think, to prepare us for the fact that she's really going to set us into a world without, uh, without a lot of other indications of, as to what is going on. Okay, we are going to now dive in and look at the first page. This is, um, it's going to be an exercise in patience and frustration. We might as well be out there uh, salmon fishing because to my mind, this book has several different beginnings, and we're only going to take a look at this first one. So on page four here, we are going to dive right in. Thomas Dunn, the head ghillie at the castle, wasn't telling Father Declan anything he didn't already know. The river too high and wild from all the rains, and the salmon therefore not moving, just lying on the bottom, not showing themselves at all, and the midges terrible, and only the two days left to the season, so of course all but the least desirable of the river beats, number four, was let already. And Frank and Peter will be gillying for the Americans staying at the castle, father, so I'll have to give you Seamus O'Connor, and he's hardly worth the pay, and that on top of the 20 pounds for the beat, and you know yourself, father, how beat four is after a rainfall such as we've been having. I mean, it goes on and on. So um, I'm, I'm going to stop there. But this is not, it, it, this is sort of, uh, I mean, is this one sentence? It's, this is really, wow, this is one sentence. So, and again, I could have gone on. Um, so you have the sense right from the beginning. It's such a, um, wow, it's such an artful novel because you have a, um, a sense of this kind of urgency because, I mean, you know, the sentence was going to go on and on and on. This kind of breathlessness in the telling. But what we're talking about here is really, again, this salmon fishing adventure on the one hand is is everything in the novel. And on the other hand, it has nothing to do with the all of it. I mean, of course, the all of it is also reflecting, you know, everything. It's Father Declan and Seamus and the, the salmon and all of these different pieces. Um, but Thomas Dunn, so to begin with, we have um, Thomas, we've talked about this before, your John Thomas is a, it can be slang for penis. Um, done, you have this sense of like all done, like something is finished. And this Thomas Dunn, who's the head kind of gilly, he's the head sort of fisherman helper at the castle, he's he's really pushing hard on, on sort of being done and, and not going out and not wanting Father Declan to waste his time. But so you have this 
this very sort of significant name. All of the names are significant. We will get to them. And, and you have this castle. So you have the first and last name of this person of kind of mild authority. Of course, sort of nothing compared to the authority of Father Declan. And you have this idea of this castle. So you have um, these hierarchies right from the beginning. You have the, this classist thing with the idea of the castle and the, the sort of the serf and the, the priest and Gilly, you know, is the, this Gilly, this helper person is kind of your servant. Um, and then you have this idea, of course, of the castle. The, there were ancient Irish castles, but there also would have been castles that were a result of, um, of the British colonizing effort in Ireland. So you have these, you, you know, it's setting up all of these historical and, and um, hierarchical systems right from the beginning. We have the Americans, of course, who have come in. It's not clear what era we are talking about. We have cars, we have an old Ford. So we have to assume, you know, it's probably the 40s. I'm gonna take another look at that and come back in, uh, in sections two and three and see if I can pinpoint that a bit. Also importantly, you have these Americans who are staying at the castle. It's The castle has now become sort of a hotel. It's become kind of a tourist attraction. And, um, you know, you have this sort of Irish decline and you have this influx of the, the American money um, in the 19th, at the end of the 19th and through the 20th century. So you have this sense of, of everything as sort of being done and everything being in decline and the, mud, the, the muddy waters and everything kind of roiling. So you really have this sense of, um, of, of a lot of things being in turmoil and a lot of things being in flux. And really, Father Declan is about to face a very difficult day. Okay, so we will go on and look at the several other beginnings of this incredible novel, because I do stand by this idea that there's several distinct sort of beginnings. And then we will dive into lots of other amazing things about this brief, perfect novel in the second and third segments of this lecture. Join me. Readers, welcome back for the second section of our three-part lecture on Jeanette Haynes' amazing The All of It. In the first segment, we took a look at the very opening chapter, and I, I alluded to the fact that I have a sense that there are several different beginnings of this novel. We're going to look at the structure and look at those sort of um, discrete, separate beginnings uh, in the, in, under the auspices of the structure itself. Then we're going to talk about narrative voice and how um, really, I think, on some level, the lifeblood of this novel is Jeanette Haynes' amazing use of dialogue. I mean, actually, she does such a great job with symbolism and with motif and with character development and plot and pacing. And oh, my God, I mean, it's just a it's a it's a feat. But we're going to talk about her uh, about her dialogue in particular. And then we're going to talk about Edna's voice uh, more specifically. Okay, so Anne Patchett in the introduction does allude to this remarkable, uh, she calls it remarkable. She also calls it a calculated construction. And if you recall in section one, we discussed the fact that Jeanette Hain herself, with her musical background, really believed in discipline and structure for the way that they allowed her to work freely with her imagination. So it's really, um, you know, it's a smart writer in Anne Patchett who is recognizing this incredibly masterful structure 
that is this kind of discipline and kind of musicality that Jeanette, Jeanette Hain is is relying on. So, and Ann Patchett says it nicely. You, you're sort of there are these beginning chapters that are that are very short. You know, that, the one with the obituary is just the one paragraph. They're each a few pages, and then you know you're getting into that rhythm of like these short you know, couple of pages, chapters, and then suddenly you're kind of headlong. And I do think short chapters like that facilitate quick reading. You know, they're really like you finish one chapter and you're like, oh my God, I have plenty of time to read this next chapter. And you sort of get going on your pace. And then suddenly you're in a chapter that goes on for, you know, 25 pages. And then the next one goes on for 60 pages or what, how I did not pace all of that out. But it, it is, it's almost like a trick that she does. And it's interesting because honestly, it's a, it's a bold move. It is a bold move because I think a lot of readers, uh, once you kind of get into that rhythm would be like, wait, what just happened? You know, it, almost like a bait and switch kind of a thing. I imagine maybe if her editor was a bit of an idiot, that her editor was like, whoa, what is up with these chapters? It's highly unorthodox to have you know, a few chapters that are so short. And then it isn't even like we have one long, long, long chapter. There are a couple more chapters that are separated, uh, but but at very, very different uh, lengths, coming in at different lengths. We also have this incredible, throughout the structure, we begin with this fishing expedition. And we're going to talk today about how the, the day with Father Declan out fishing, the very beginning of the book, is actually the day after Kevin's funeral. So all of what is happening in this book is a retrospective. It's all Father Declan out there trying to catch this fish uh, and really having a terrible time of it. And the whole time he's sort of mulling this experience, this, this confession, not an ecclesiastical confession, not one for absolution, but this, this, um, this, this secret that has been told to him, this reality that has been made clear. So um, we're going to take a look just very quickly. Uh, chapter one is Father Declan. We've read the beginning of that. Thomas Dunn, they're at the castle. Thomas Dunn is saying, don't bother. It's miserable out there. Uh, but Father Declan pers pursues the opportunity on chapter three. I mean, sorry, chapter two, he heads out with Seamus. On chapter three, we also still have Father Declan and Seamus. It would be interesting, we don't have time, to really dig into why we have that chapter break there. Um, we, we simply don't have time. But it, it's, you know, you have in the beginning, the, the Father Seamus, at, fa well, Father Declan at the castle. Then we have him out with Seamus for two chapters. And then in the fourth chapter, we go back in time to when Father Declan is trying to get Kevin to confess. Chapter five is also like that. So again, we have uh, another chapter split that isn't because of a time break or because you know different characters are coming it's um it, it, it seems when you when you write it out like this somewhat arbitrary i am sure that if we really dug in there would be many many reasons for that chapter six we have edna really wanting to insist that they come that they be known as father as um husband and wife in the obituary then we have the obituary itself which adds so much great texture because it's um, it's a standalone thing. There's nothing around it. And it's this bold printed matter that is so, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a promise that the, that the father, that the priest is carrying out on Edna's behalf. And yet it is also the priest doing something that he, you know, lying. So something that he thinks is deeply immoral. There's something very beautiful about that as a standalone chapter. Then after that, 
Um, we go back to Father Declan and Seamus. Uh, and then we move from the time that he is out there, not geographically, but we just, within that same chapter, within chapter eight, we move to, to, to Edna telling him uh, about the, we have him sort of remembering Edna's confession. I keep saying confession and it's really not a confession. When I say confession, I do not mean a religious one. I think that is clear. Um, we have him fishing, then we have her divulging her secret. And then chapter nine, um, we ha yes, chapter nine at the end, we have Father Declan fishing uh, and we have some of Edna's voice, uh, but the story is very much Father Declan's in many ways, which we will get to more in part three. But it's this incredible structure where you have these short chapters, which really do hasten and, and suck the reader in. They hasten the story along, they suck the reader in. But what I was even more intrigued by is the idea that, that this is all happening during this fishing expedition that Father Declan is on. And it's actually very taut. I mean, there is a lot that's happening in this novel that is, is, is told in, in sort of within the frame of this one day of fishing. And yet you have the whole story of, which is harrowing of Edna and of Edna and Kevin. And then you also have sort of the ramifications of that and the different ways that Father Declan is grappling with it. So if the structure were not enough to uh, impress you, and the dialogue I'm about to get into will also, in fact, impress you. I want to take a quick interlude here and look at the names in the novel. So um, any writer worth their salt is going to choose names that are both evocative in terms of how they sound and um, will make sort of all of the right associations for the reader. But what's really beautiful is when the names also have real significance in terms of what they mean. So Declan is a, is a sort of an archetypally uh, Irish name. It means a man of prayer or someone who is full of goodness. So it was so funny in the definition because it said um, uh, uh, someone who is full of goodness. In other words, a man of prayer, which is, I mean, I don't know who was writing this definition. I must have been at like, I don't know, Catholicism.com or something. But um, there is this idea of Declan as being a very good person who is also devout and full of prayer. Interestingly, his last name, Delory, um, it's an anglicized last name. So it would have been O'Lochra. Wow, that's my stab at Irish. I mean, I just don't, I, that I, Irish is such a confounding language, Gaelic. It is just absolutely, I mean, those accents and those capital letters in the middle of words. I mean, it is all those crazy vowels, all the crazy consonants, um, but O'Lochra, Wow, now I sound like maybe I was trying to speak Hebrew. It would have been an O and then L-U-A-C-H-R-A, which was anglicized to de Lowry, um, and it means of the light or descended of the light. So this is a man of prayer descended of the light, which is so interesting because he's kind of a dick, honestly. Like Father de Lowry is like actually kind of a jerk. And I think we are supposed to have sympathy with him, even though he's kind of this cantankerous guy who doesn't treat Seamus well and who's kind of um, interested for all the wrong reasons and making some very bad assumptions, or not bad assumptions, but is making assumptions that are, that are um, you know, distasteful to him himself about Edna's story. So we have this, um, I think an aspirational name is maybe the way that I'm gonna put it for Declan DeLowry, Father DeLowry. Then we have Kevin, which means handsome or beloved. 
And I just thought that was such a great, uh, such a great, um, like it just, it was perfect for him. I mean, he's just, he's, he's sort of, we see him as angelic in lots of ways. He has his, you know, his like whitish hair that's kind of blowing around. And, um, you see him as being very kind of innocent and being protective and being, um, just like a very, very good person and certainly beloved. I mean, he and Edna, they have a, a huge amount of, of love for one another. So I think it really is a good, a good name. And it's interesting to me that both of them are very good looking people, um, but they're very, very different looking. So you have Kevin, who is this kind of blonde, um, you know, uh, well, blonde guy. And then you have uh, uh, Edna, who has come from the, the when the Spaniards were trying to colonize the island, which was such an interesting, I've always wondered about that. You have the lighter skinned, you know, um, sort of redhead, blonde Irish people. And then you have um, who, I guess maybe the Norse, did those people come to, I mean, I, do not look to me for genealogy. Edna means renewer, delight, or rejuvenation, which is so amazing. It's not a name I love. Edna just doesn't, like, doesn't really connote, like, a, um, a real beauty to me. And she is, in fact, a real beauty. And that is one of um, the things that Father, certainly one of the things that Father Declan is interested in, despite himself. But this idea of, of her being um, a delight and of being a renewer and of rejuvenation, in many ways, Kevin and Edna are sort of arrested in childhood. The image that we have of them as adults is them riding on their bicycles and, um, it, you know, sort of headlong and, and, and riding fast and right together. And it's a very, um, very sort of a uh, non-romantic childlike vision of people racing along on bicycles and and so you have this sense of them um as, as, it's a perfect name for her as someone who's sort of delighted by things and and this idea of rejuvenation and youth and uh and of course there is this idea of her as being a renewer and a rejuvenator of father declan himself which is the the much larger issue at play Seamus, um, I think Seamus, you know, Edna is in fact American, was born in Ohio. I mean, not Edna, sorry, Jeanette. But Seamus, um, so, so I think that it is fair to think that shame is one of the things that we are supposed to be thinking of in, in both sort of like it's a shame that Father Declan has to be out with Seamus because Seamus is apparently a really shitty gilly. But also um, there is this sense of, of, of Seamus um, as it being kind of a shame because he is not... Um, you feel sort of sorry for him. I mean, Father Declan is not really very generous with him. So you have this idea that there is maybe a certain amount of shame that he is feeling. Seamus in Gaelic uh, means James. So it's sort of the, the, um, the, that's the derivation of it, or it's like the equivalent in English. And it means the supplanter. So it is interesting that the, the supplanter, this one who would take the place, so if he's there to assist Father Declan, he's sort of there to supplant him. And in fact, he does aid him in the end with this one task that he doesn't really know how to do very well. But you have this sense of him as, as being a supplanter, as being kind of a stand-in, and yet he's not there. He's, he's, for most of the day, he's off in this stone hut. So... Gosh, I mean, we just talked for five minutes about the names because honestly, this is the kind of writer Jeanette Hayne is. Okay, now we're going to go back and take a look at each one uh, of these beginning chunks uh, of the beginning chapters, just very briefly, just to look at how amazing um, these beginning sentences are together with this structure. So on, what page is this? On page three, 
we have the introduction of Thomas Dunn in the castle and Father Declan saying, yes, I'm, I'm heading out no matter what. And then we have on page six, we have the beginnings of the interactions between Seamus and uh, Father Declan. So Seamus says, if twere me, Father, given the conditions and all, I'd start off with a hairy Mary, not that stoat's tail you're tying on. Father Declan, Father Declan de Lowry in full, didn't honor the boy with a look, only the words. But you're not me, Seamus O'Connor, are you now? And you're how old? 18 last May. And I started fishing for salmon when I was 11. That makes it 52 years now I've been deciding which lure to use. So here we're really getting kind of the true colors of Father Declan. We are realizing, I'm doing some very quick math here. He's 63. So, you know, getting toward the end of his life and probably some sort of reckonings, which really actually dovetails nicely with this idea of, of things being in turmoil and the season coming to an end and conditions not being good and he's got the last beat on the river. So there is a sense of, um, of, of, of endings for, for Father, wow, for poor Father Declan. And this idea of the Harry Mary is so interesting. So, of course, you have to think here um, a bit, and this idea of, of this young upstart Seamus as, as telling him, it's not even a suggestion. It says, if twere me, Father, given the conditions, I'd start off with Harry Mary, not your stout's tail. So there's this kind of pushy thing by Seamus, and, but the Harry Mary is so, it's so cool because you should think of Holy Mary because you should be thinking uh, in sort of religious terms here. And instead of Holy Mary, it's Harry Mary, which is like, feels very subversive and very kind of, um, you know, like uh, blasphemous in lots of ways. But then you also, when you have descriptions of Edna throughout the book, there's a lot of descriptions of this black hair and the, the hair often is, um, you know, it's kind of unfurling and it's flying in the wind and there's this sense of freedom um, at one point she takes her scarf off and the, and there's the freedom of her hair. I believe it's graveside. So you have this sense of freedom that she has because she's not all kind of um, wound up. You know, she's certainly not wearing a nun's habit. You know, she's got, she's got this kind of freedom that Father Declan does not have in many, many ways. Um, but it's, it, a lot of it is seen through this dark hair that she has, this beautiful dark hair. He talks at one point about um, the light on it and um, it, it, it's a real point of his desire. So this idea of this Harry Mary, and of course, Holy Mary, you know, she's, she's the virgin. So you have this idea of him as, as, you know, this desire that is growing for the salmon. And it is also growing for Edna as he's thinking about her all day long. And so this Harry Mary becomes a stand-in and it is not a lure he wants to use. He instead is going for the stoat's tail. So, um, you know, which actually I think we could read as a phallic symbol. I mean, I'm just doing that off the top of my head here, but a stoat, I think that's like a, like, I don't know, like a beaver or like a ferret or some kind of like, you know, like an otter, not an otter, but like, you know, something with a skinnier otter kind of tail. Um, so I think there's an idea here. This Harry Mary is very important. For those of you who are watching the YouTube, I will have a, a, a series of images at the end, and I've got a lot of really amazing pictures of these different lures. It's really something. Boy, is that a a world I know nothing about. So we're right away, we're establishing yet more hierarchy and we're also bringing up this idea of, of the father, really father, 
Father Declan thinking he knows what he wants and thinking he knows what he's doing and not wanting anyone else to tell him what to do. And then, of course, the introduction of this Harry Mary. And then on page 10, sorry, on page 9, so just a couple of pages later, we have... After 25 casts and strip-ins and not a sign of a rise, the river might as well have been empty of fish, he thought, which it wasn't, of course, he knew. He changed the stoat's tail for a silver doctor. If Seamus hadn't suggested the Harry Mary, he'd probably have gone to it next, but he couldn't do Seamus that favor. So again, you've got this like this obstinacy that's coming from him that's not, Seamus is not even there, but he's sort of this prideful man. And, and so we're really setting him up as someone who on, on some level needs to be taken down a peg and on some level as, as someone who's just kind of this old curmudgeonly guy. Those are actually the same, same level, same thing. I love that, that we have this stark um, thing from the first cast of the day. So at the, the end of the chapter before, um, it's, it's just so beautiful on, on page eight. So the chapter before ends with this. In the fullness of an angler's desiring, he made his first cast of the day. I love the idea of desire as being named so specifically. And then literally on the next page, after 25 casts and strip-ins and not a sign of a rise, and then a beautiful parenthetical here, the river might as well have been empty of fish, he thought, which it wasn't, of course, he knew. So you have this parenthetical here and you have this, this first very hopeful cast and then just 25 casts later and nothing has happened. So oftentimes with a writer of Jeanette Haynes' stature, you have to understand that if they're putting a parenthetical, you know, parenthetical, like sort of the rule is that anything in parentheses you should be able to remove from a piece of writing and it should not affect the writing at all. And in this case, it, it, the sentence will make sense and it won't grammatically harm the paragraph. But what is in this, this parenthetical phrase here is crucially important. If you can hear that dog in the background, that is a dog who wants to come in who's not coming in. She's actually, she can add to the pathos here. If you can hear her crying out there, it's just like Father Declan's soul, you know, when he's not catching the fish. But he's saying there in parentheses, the river might as well have been empty of fish, he thought, which it wasn't, of course, he knew. This, I mean, I'm gonna give you one second. Think about the significance of what he might be thinking about in a thing where something is empty, but it's supposed to be full and he's convincing himself it's full. I mean, I think we have to be reading the fact that he is looking for a sign of God. He's looking for faith. He's looking for, he's, he's really desiring proof that there is something there when he really is feeling like there isn't something there. I mean, I think you have to read this amazing parenthetical about the fact that he, he, he feels like this is an empty thing that he is devoting himself to. And yet, and he says right here, um, which it wasn't, of course, he knew. Even the syntax here, which it wasn't, comma, of course, comma, he knew. I mean, this is him protesting too much. This is him really trying to talk himself into the idea, of course there are fish here, which in some ways is him devoting himself to, to, to God and thinking, of course there is a God here that I am devoting myself to. It's unbelievable. I mean, we could pick apart any sentence in this novel and it would feel like this. Okay, and then we go to the next, the beginning of the next chapter. I'm just gonna read the very first line. Explain, Kevin, explain, confess. 
I mean, it's it's so pushy and it's so clear on some level that this is very much about Father Declan. Father Declan needs this confession um, more than than Kevin needs it. And Kevin, in fact, is not able to make it, um, which you should know by now. We are going to have some spoilers, certainly in part three and maybe in this one, too. Um, but here's the spoiler. Kevin is not going to be able to make the confession. Um, and in fact, we find that out in the next section. And then at the beginning of chapter five here, we have this stunning sentence. The next day, sinking fast, he would die. But a few minutes later, Kevin said weakly, it's for me to tell you, Father. So the tragedy here, of course, is that he isn't going to be able to deliver this confession, but it's it's all there, meaning that this, this disillusionment and this disappointment and this tragedy this idea, um, it's its even in the middle of the sentence in this amazing M dash, my favorite punctuation mark, um, he would die but a few minutes later. He's, he's not able, he, he won't be able to make this confession that he wants to make. I, I don't know if you can hear my dog. She is really crying out there. She's feeling Kevin's pain. So, but this idea too of, of, um, of him feeling like he needs to tell it and then not being frustrated and this idea of him wanting to tell but he's going to die in a few minutes, that is all the kind of tension, the kind of beautiful um, urgency that Jeanette Hain has even, you know, we're on page 14 of this little novel and we're already like very deeply invested in what is going to happen. And then... So here on chapter six, we have Edna. We have, um, this is a very good uh, sort of instantiation of her voice. We have her voice here. It's a, um, we have a nice, the, the narrator here is technically a third person narrator. It's kind of an omniscient narrator who who sees into different people's souls certainly, but is, is sort of located most acutely with Father Declan. So it's a little bit from Father Declan's perspective, this idea of Edna pleading, which we'll see right here. Edna had pled, you'll see to it, Father, have the death notice printed just as I've said it to you, just as Catherine McPhilomeny, McPhilomey had it done when Sorley died. So she has to, that, that's the end of what we're going to read for the beginning of chapter six. She has to ask him this huge favor and her fate is in his hands and she can't read. We know that she is a person who is illiterate, but she has been told how she wants it done. And so she says to him, please have it printed in exactly this way. And it's, you know, Father Declan to this point has been a little bit of a curmudgeon, a little bit of a dick, frankly. And so there is this question of like, is he going to sort of compromise his, his very strict morals and do this thing for her, even though he knows it is a lie. And then we have our stunning chapter seven, uh, which is simply the obituary, which I am not going to, um, I'm not, well, actually I'm going to read two parts of it. Kevin, beloved husband of Edna, deeply regretted by his loving wife. So you, you have this double iteration here of, of, of this idea of him being a husband and then him being deeply beloved by his wife. So you have this kind of casting of both of these people into these two roles. So, um, Oh, and look, here we have the date, 1982. Remember, guys? Remember in, in session one when I said I was going to find it? Just found it, 1982. Wow, it is so much later than I thought. What a sloppy reader that I, in my mind, I literally had this whole thing happening in the 40s. But here's what I will tell you about that. The story's timeless. That is the lesson that we're supposed to get from this. <laughs> I mean, the idea of this, this old Ford 
So then I immediately went to some sort of like middle of the 19th or middle of the 20th century moment. It's much, much later than that. It is interesting that you have someone who is illiterate. I do think there is a timelessness to this story that's very important. Of course, 1982 situates us um, much more firmly in the midst of the Troubles and much more the Troubles in Ireland between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland between the Protestants and, um, and the Catholics, other way around. Um, has began in 1969. So we're really in the heart of a lot of sectarian violence. Also interesting that Kevin died uh, at age 63, which we know um, when we had those numbers given to us before by Father Declan, I think maybe we should have been paying a little more attention than I was paying because he also was 63. So I think we're meant to do that math back then, which I did not do until I was with you all. Um, we realize that Father Declan is 63. We also hear here, 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 that uh, Kevin is also 63, which I think just reinforces this crisis. Father Declan is exactly the age of this man who has just died. And on some level, um, you know, we find that Father Declan, in fact, is, is very jealous on some level of, of this really loving, um, really intimate relationship that Kevin has been the beneficiary of his whole life. Okay, so I'm glad we read the obituary. It was just full. That was like a little gold mine of all sorts of amazing literary stuff. Uh, and then we're not going to read it, but on page 21 at the beginning of chapter 8, we go back to Father Declan uh, and he's out fishing and it's miserable and the midges are biting him and he's not catching anything. And then chapters 8 and 9... Um, move along. Eight is not super long. It's like, I don't know, eight pages. But then chapter nine is when things really get cooking. And we go all the way. Oh my gosh. Do we go all the way to the end of the book? Yes, we do. Nine chapters. So um, I am going to close the discussion of the structure of the book and of the amazing sort of several different starts uh, with the argument that really this is a story about Father Declan. It's really a story about a 63-year-old man who is really facing his mortality and really facing a, a, a crisis in terms of, of God and in terms of desire and in terms of life choices and in terms of, of mortality. So it's a really beautiful way to structure the whole thing. Page listeners, readers, welcome back. This is part three, the third section of my lecture on Jeanette Haynes' unbelievably gorgeous The All of It. So I said originally that in the third section we were going to talk about the spareness of the prose, also its richness, and we were going to discuss language, in, in, uh, in particular figurative language. We're going to talk about desire and the close of the novel. And we are going to do some of those things, but honestly, I am so taken by a couple of elements that I'm going to have to shift this around a little bit. We will discuss the prose, certainly. We're going to talk about um, dialogue and how important it is. And we're going to discuss a little bit of figurative language as we move through. We're definitely going to talk about uh, desire and then we're going to look at the close of the novel. Okay, so I want to uh, dive right in by looking at pages 36 and 37. 
So this is a novel, a brief novel, that um, we discussed this in part one. It, it is very much a story about Father Declan, but at the heart of this sort of um, crisis that he is having, this crisis of faith, this crisis of desire, at the heart of that is Edna's story, of course. It is really very much the story of both of these people and, and what they are looking for from story. I would posit that Edna is really looking to be seen and she's looking to be recognized, especially after the death of her brother, and that Father Declan is looking for many different things, not that. Um, and I would argue that Edna, in fact, already has a very clear sense of who she is and what her relationship was. And so for Father Declan, this is a much more complex few days. One of the ways, as you might imagine, that the novel is really doing most, its most amazing work is through dialogue. So this is a, a, an entire novel that is built on the dialogue, on this conversation between these two people. And I find that the dialogue of In the Hands of Jeanette Hain is just unbelievably well done. So on page 36 and 37, there are a few things I'm gonna tease out. One is the dialogue itself. The other are the glosses, which is simply sort of all the words around it, things like he said, she said. Um, all, all of the words around uh, the, the actual words that are spoken within the quotation marks, and then gestures. Those are the three elements we're gonna look at. So um, here on page 36 toward the bottom. This is, again, conversation between Father Declan. He begins speaking and Edna. You never asked your dad about the room, Edna? You nor Kevin? He asked gently. She turned on him, a face fired with frustration. I can tell it's hopeless, Father. Hopeless? Speaking of it, there's no way to get it across to you, she spoke through her teeth. The fear we had of our dad. Ah, I see. Forgive me, Edna. But I see now. You have to see, she said deeply. If you're to understand, you have to. I do, I see now, believe me, Edna. So I'll go on then, please, Edna. So there is so much good work happening here. The actual dialogue, so any writer worth her salt is going to write dialogue that is so strong and that is so, um, it, it, you know, so telling and working on so many different levels that you should not have to actually have adverbs and you shouldn't have to rely on your glosses and the gestures to convey things. If I were going to find any fault in this incredible novel, that would actually be just one of the sort of very, very nitpicky things I would say. So when he says, um, you never asked your dad about the room, Edna, you nor, you nor Kevin, he asked gently. It is important to let us know, but I would argue that, you know, the rest of the dialogue or some other things, or maybe if she switched the wording slightly, that, that she would be able to eliminate that gently. It's, it's not terrible, and, um, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and I think that, you know, you can argue that, in fact, uh, a, a, you know, the occasional adverb is, is very expedient. So I, I don't think it's terrible, but I think it's, it's a little bit kind of sloppy. It's a little bit easy. And then um, this next phrase, she turned on him a face fired with frustration. So I, I think that you may be of the opinion that that's very effective. I am not a huge fan of alliteration. In this case, I do like the, f f you know, that repetition of that fired, you know, the face of frustration, because there's a little bit of a sputtering kind of thing happening there. And there's a sense of kind of not being able to get going. They're kind of this like, you know, stuck in the same place. But I would also agree 
I mean, agree. I hope you agree. I would also argue that that I'm not sure that is necessary. I mean, if she just, uh, maybe. I mean, I think that if, if, if there were a way to convey that instead of this description, that might be better. And then this next line, he says, hopeless. And she says, uh, there's no way to get it across to you. She spoke through her teeth, the fear we had of our dad. So this idea of her speaking through her teeth, that, that I'm not sure that that is necessary. And, and when people, when authors describe um, what's happening with the body, uh, oftentimes, I mean, that is a very like MFA thing to be doing. And there's lots of, um, you know, instruction to sort of tell us how your character is feeling in their body. I think generally that is not very effective for me, at least. This idea of she spoke through her teeth, it, it's... Um, I get, I understand it's like that, you know, she's gritting her teeth and she's very frustrated and she's, she's really anguished in this moment. But for me, it felt a bit, uh, a bit heavy handed. Uh, so then, and, and I do think if you stripped out some of these glosses and adverbs, you would see how really, really powerful the language is. And the most salient thing for me, uh, we were going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Edna's voice, but we simply don't have enough time. This is a brief novel that I could talk about for days and days and days. Uh, but Edna's voice is very assured. Right from the beginning, we have this sense of her as knowing what she wants to say and delivering it with conviction and at times not being particularly patient with Father Declan, which is actually, um, it seems really to me, it seems like a very uh, good reaction because he's kind of a dick, a little bit of a curmudgeon. We know that he's having, um, we get more and more appreciation as the novel rolls on about sort of his personal struggles and what he is bringing to this. But I do think that that Edna's assurance and her strength is is really well conveyed through her voice and the dialogue. Okay, in fact, we're going to look at an example of that on pages 86 and 87. This is a bit later at the bottom of 86. This is this gorgeous uh, telling after she announces that they are, in fact, she and Kevin are brother and sister. Uh, she, she, she has this incredibly uh, colorful and detailed description of their journey together from way up in the north um, in Donegal with, in that mountainous region, then down toward the, uh, the south, kind of the middle coastal part of, of Ireland. It's this beautiful description on the bottom of page 86. She laughed richly. I had this certain picture in my head of a cottage with pink dog roses and hollyhocks at the door and a cow lying in the shade of a stand of alders and sheep grazing in a pasture that let down to cliffs and the sea beyond and inside the cottage a blue tea cloth spread ready on a table it was all so clear to me being as it was a dream of the desiring kind so there is a lot happening here i'm going to very quickly um say that i think this is it's a very biblical sort of scene she's imagining her own sort of eden and and i think here um it's not so much like an apple tree or or a fig tree uh that is at the center of this but it is this kind of edenic thing but it's almost like an old testament thing where you have um you know two of each of the species we we in here we don't have um we don't have two of the cows but we do have some we have more than one sheep but you have this idea um and even dog roses there's this nice evocation of dogs. There is this cow, which is going to come up again later, the, the symbol of the cow. There's the idea of the sheep. So there's this very sort of bucolic, 
Edenic kind of pre-lapsarian vision, pre-lapsarian simply meaning before the fall, before Adam and Eve realize, uh, before they, you know, be, they fall prey to Satan and eat the apple of knowledge and understand that they are flawed and that they are, uh, that they are naked and, you know, sinners. But so there's this very beautiful um, description that is so compelling to us. And then she wraps it up with this nice uh, repetition, or, you know, this is a word that comes up in, again and again of desire. So this is a, a dream of a desiring kind. And importantly, we have Father Declan respond with this. She says, it was also clear to me being as it was a dream of the desiring kind and desiring here is in italics. He marveled at the word she'd chosen to emphasize and nodded his head in a deep according way. So he, um, as, as we are going to find out, he is becoming more and more desirous of Edna and of what Edna stands for. And, you know, with a certain amount of in innocence, ultimately, um, you know, Edna, importantly, has, has taken in, in some ways the same vow of, of, of <laughs> I almost said the same vow of celebrity, um, the same vow of celibacy that our father Declan has taken. She, and we don't know that quite yet, importantly, but she really is very innocent and pure. And there is this very sort of Edenic uh, idea here, but it's full of desire. And for her, it was an innocent kind of desire, this, this desire to, to care for things and to have things growing and abundance and peace. Um, and so it, he says, uh, you know, he's nodding because he's really understanding this, this sort of innocent desire. And then she says, you do see the state I was in. She met his gaze with luminous eyes. Well, we went all that day happy as larks. So this is um, the, 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 I like the idea of how she says, you do see the state I'm in because again, she, she knows, she knows herself and she knows her, her innocence and she knows that this dream, in fact, to a certain extent becomes reality. So you, and you also have her, um, she goes on after this larks business. Um, we have Father Declan often, he is, is uh, seen as kind of together with the salmon, his struggling with the salmon and the fish. It's, it's this kind of, um, you know, the salmon, which is elusive and, you know, it feels empty. The river feels empty is very much a, a, a crisis of religion for him. And, um, you know, salmon on some level is sort of a stand in for God. And of course, you have the idea of loaves and fishes and this idea of the fish multiplying and him being able to, much like Christ, being able to provide these loaves and fishes for his parishioners. In contrast to the to the fish in the water, we have this idea of these seabirds in particular, but larks and Kevin is very um, closely tied to the kestrel, which is a type of a hawk. But this even the, the sound of it, you know, Kevin and kestrel, uh, and and very explicitly we have a point when Edna says that Kevin was very partial to kestrels, which are it's interesting because they are a hawk-like creature. I, I see him maybe as like. A little more interested perhaps in something a little more um passive and and sort of beautiful although kestrels are also beautiful so we're going to go down a little bit further and look at the bottom of page 87 again to reinforce this idea of edna's strength of voice he uh father ducklin is saying her prowess still he thought unkillable emanating from her like heat 
so here we have this idea of her talking about desire and then he has this this sense of her heat and this idea and an unkillable is very strong you know it's 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 not um you know indefatigable or it's not just like untiring it's like unkillable there's something about her that is everlasting in a way um that speaks to immortality and it speaks to god and it speaks to the idea of 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 the kind of deliverance that that father Declan is looking for so she in some ways is a paragon of what he is looking for father I'm going on too much no he protested no just the contrary and in the clutch of a near forgotten sense of intimacy and concentration it's years since I've engaged in such close talk with anyone it makes me happy he might have said sad if he hadn't caught himself in time then wondered whether, for what he had said, she'd think him ailing. But, this is Edna speaking, a talk of the confiding sort, she said simply, it's not everyone a person can have it with. So this is a beautiful um, moment. It's, you know, we're 88 pages into the novel. The, the novel's 145, I think, long. So we're at a very important sort of, you know, three quarters of the way through. And this is a little bit of a preview of what we're going to see in the climax, which we're about to get to in just a second. But his desire is mounting and she is able not only to, to sort of not shame him and not make him feel bad, but she's able to very clearly say, this is, I'm confiding in you. This is not, again, this is not a confession, um, but this is a very rare sort of intimacy that we have here. She's able to, to, to reinforce that and to sort of, you know, keep her stand and, and, and keep her strength. And even in the face of, of, of what feels like kind of this desiring thing where he's sensing heat and whatnot. Okay, then we're gonna move on from this strength of Edna's voice and this kind of this pre uh, climax. Wow, I mean, the, the, probably, I mean, pun intended. You know, I mean, there's a lot of sexual tension that is building between the two of them. At least, <laughs> at least on the side of our father Declan. Um, so there is a very important climax, um, and we're going to look at that on page one twelve. This is so incredibly well done. So on page one twelve here, I'm going to read. A, a, it's a slightly longer passage, just like half a page. Um, and then, and this is Edna speaking about why she kind of let the lie go. Uh, you know, she had a chance when she first got to town to to tell people that in fact they were brother and sister instead of um, you know perpetuating this idea that they were man and wife. If we'd corrected what they'd decided about us, told them we were brother and sister, they'd have gone about trying to settle our lives for us. Myself expected to want to marry, and Kevin seen by the women as a hope the lot of them leeching onto our privacy and pecking at our freedom, busy at arranging ourselves to fit the slots of their desires. So this is so important. I mean, the, this is a, a pair of people who have grown up in a very, very difficult, very isolated surrounding and, and just really have had very little access to the world. Um, Edna is not literate. They, you know, until they were 14 or 15 years old, they, they were, they were, you know, essentially by themselves in this very remote setting with no mother. And well, she was, I think they were like three and four, two and three when the mother died um, of delivering a stillborn child. So they have this abusive situation with their alcoholic father. 
uh, and then and 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 very little kind of education until they are you know relatively far into their teens so it does make sense that they would want privacy and they would want to be living uh, in a way that feels comfortable and familiar to them it's so fascinating how I mean this just had not occurred to me like it just it's so kind of otherworldly that but it makes so much sense that there would be a desire on their part to 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 live in a way that feels comfortable for them it, it, it's a real revelation and I think that that um, Jeanette Hain here has really earned this it makes complete sense there are lots of different ways you can sort of say oh yes she was building us toward this idea that they, they wanted certain freedoms. They wanted to continue to live a little bit outside of societal norms, but they also wanted some sense of community and they wanted um, the ocean and they wanted, uh, you know, livelihoods uh, and a way to survive. So, and I love that she ends this little uh, paragraph with this desires, their desires. Desire, I mean, I should have an electronic copy so I can find the number of times desires comes up in this novel, it comes up all the time, which could be kind of heavy handed, except that Jeanette Hain is such an absolute master. So then after that word desires, she goes on and says, they're thinking we were married. She concluded simply, it cleared it for us to be and do as we pleased. So I love that she concluded simply, I mean, again, this is the strength and the conviction in Edna's, uh, in, in her voice, in the way she uses her voice. He heard her, understood her, but God forgive him in the state she'd gotten him in, a in the state she'd gotten him in of feeling demeaned and pocked as an object of her pity and in the grip of some heretofore unknown brand of a crazed and crazy pride, which imperatively and absolutely required that he recoup his dignity and score he bludgeoned her with and what exactly outside the usual did it please you to be and do i mean this is a climax in the sense that this is he is really reaching his lowest ebb here and the fascinating thing like this is this is what kind of blows my mind about this book is the reader in this really prurient and kind of yucky way is wondering the same thing. I mean, as a reader, I was like, I don't I don't know what kind of relationship they're having. I don't know if this is like a flowers in the attic kind of a moment where they're going to continue on with their sexual lives. I just I don't know. I wasn't particularly judging of that at one point. Uh, there's reference to the fact that she d didn't have any children. And so you, you are curious as a reader, which makes you feel um, it should make you feel like a little unsettled and a little gossipy and a little weird and a little judgy. And so when he does this and you're like, oh, what a dick, you also have to be thinking to yourself a little like, ooh, but wait, I was having those exact same questions. So then again, Edna, with all of her conviction and all of her strength, we have this paragraph. Disbelief. No, dismay of the deepest sort arrested her features. But like a feral dog after a lamb, he was not to be stopped. Again, the lamb, the sheep, this idea of, of innocence, this idea um, of a, a year old, an Y-I-R-R-O-L, this year old lamb uh, that we were told about in the author's note at the very beginning. This innocent lamb, this lamb of God here, is, um, is, is you know, he's attacking her. He was not to be stopped. Tell me, he insinuated, was, was it the other part? Then crudely, the sexual part that he never finished. 
She rose before him like a pillar of fire. You could think that, she cried, of Kevin and myself, that we kept it up? Shame. I must know, he raged, tis my duty. Then God damn your duty for the filthy thing it is. I mean, it is just so beautiful. It's so forceful and so, um, it's working on so many levels, this goddamn, you know, th this, I, this expletive that people use all the time. In this case, obviously has this very important, um, you know, double meaning because it, it really means what she, wanted to, she wants it to mean. You know, it's goddamn, she's meaning this, <laughs> in fact, pretty literally. It's really beautiful the way that she says shame and you can't see this, but it is italicized and has an exclamation mark. So again, this voice that she has and this conviction and strength are just undeniable. It's so beautiful. So after we have that climactic moment, it's so funny, um, part of me, after I finished reading the book for the first time, I kept kind of forgetting that there was this whole thing, kind of a denouement that happens after this climax. In my mind, it was sort of, I mean, and I think this comes from the fact that I, as a reader, was like, I felt a little bad. I felt judgy and sort of aligned with Father Declan in a way that was not totally comfortable for me. So you have this sense of um, of 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 like like that being such a big moment, and then it actually was very nice to remember that oh no wait there is a whole sort of denouement. There's this whole sort of falling action and a, and a really beautiful conclusion. Um, it, it's just honestly one of the most generous endings of a novel that I can possibly think of. So we're going to look a little bit at the language as we move through the end of the book. On 136, um, we're going to, so he's caught his fish, which is just this really very, very big deal. He finds, he, he, he is able to catch the fish, which um, I think you can read as sort of this, this um, reinforcement of his faith. But I think you can also read it as, you know, it's a fish going into this net. I think there's a, a very phallic thing. I'm, I'm making like a fish and a net hand gesture. If you can't see me on the on the video on YouTube here, um, if you can't see my pea coat too, I'm feeling very Irish here. I'm feeling very Irish spring. Um, so you, you have this fish and this net thing, which is very phallic. You have this idea maybe that catching this salmon is going to sort of change his life forever and he's gonna, he really wants to show this to her, which again, I think you can read this as a, as a phallic symbol. You can also read it as the loaves and fishes idea that he wants to, you know, be a good sort of Christ figure and wants to, you know, uh, bring this, this sort of nurturing gesture to her. But so he has this, this desire that he's beginning to really get in touch with about Edna. So on page 136 here, but must he forever give in to the Mrs. Duggins of the world? Duggan there too, like this idea of being dug in to something, of being really stubborn, of being, you know, intractable, of being just like really not being able to shift in terms of your judgments. Uh, but must he forever give in to the Mrs. Duggins of the world, forever keep sublimating wishes as he was this instant sublimating parentheses, burying or trying to, the wish, another parentheses, he struck the word desire. I mean, here it is again, again, in parentheses, it's this very sort of, um, you know, some of the very most important things here are happening in parentheses. Desire in this case is also italicized, but he won't say desire to himself, and yet it is emphasized for the reader. Um, so, so the sentence is, 
uh, as he was this instant sublimating the wish to share with someone this singular in his life, that's all hyphenated, this is like a virtuoso uh, punctuation situation here, people. Um, this singular in his life brilliantly prodigious Gallimaufry 24 pound 10 ounce day. I looked up Gallimaufry, it means like a, a hodgepodge or a jumble of different things. And this day really has been a hodgepodge and jumble. It's been full of disappointment and bitterness and pain and discomfort, but also revelation and um, rejuvenation, which is Edna's name. It's a real sense of, of, of victory and a sense of having come through something difficult. So he has this idea, this, this sort of thing that he won't call a desire, he calls it a wish. And then on the next page, on 137, it's a brand new paragraph, innocent, the mere wishing of a mere wish. So again, um, on the other side, when he said wish, and it said he struck the word desire, so we can read desire as the wish. So when he says innocent, the mere wishing of a mere wish, this is very much a case of protesting too much. This is very much a desiring of desire. We should read those substitutions that, that he himself is not able to get in touch with. The snare, face it, was the wish's hub, the core specific Edna. So he's getting to this idea of Edna as being, you know, as a wish. So then down a little further, we are witness to his struggle. Resist. Priestliness performed the thought of the world. He said it aloud, resist, then decided, chung, just like that, not to. So I love chung is a, um, it, here it's, it's all in lowercase and it's italicized and there's an exclamation mark. I'm not really sure, it didn't quite work for me, chung, I, there, there was something about it, um, I, and she's not going to say wham, but, but for some reason it didn't quite resonate. But I liked it that just like that is has no spaces. Just like that is all one one word. Although unfortunately it has kind of a weird um, resonance with that whole like just like that kind of moment um, in memes and then also of course in the Sex and the City reboot. So he decided not to. So there's this idea of, of he's not going to resist. So as the reader you're like, oh my God, like what, I mean, what is gonna happen here? On the next page here, and supposing he could, did, make it in that time, would there be, ah, the critical question, at half nine, a lamp still lit in Edna's window. So risk a greater speed, hazard the curves and ditches, go it. So he's really, I mean, he's gone from not being able to say the word desire to himself, just talking out loud to himself, and then ultimately saying, so risk, risk a greater speed, hazard the curves and ditches, go it. So he's like giving himself this kind of pep talk and it's not, it's, it's very direct. It's, it's in a, um, it's, it's the imperative tone and he's using that, 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 um, that tone on himself sort of. So as the reader, you're aligned with this idea of go, 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 you know, drive, hazard the curves, which is, and the ditches, which of course is, um, you know, metaphorical and this idea of go, you need to go. Okay, so then we're going to look along a little further. So then he arrives, there is a light in the window. Um, and, and as the reader, you know, he goes past that first house and you're like, hurry, hurry, hurry. Um, and so on 141, we have them, you know, she comes running out. She's so happy to see him. And then this is such a beautiful uh, short little bit here in the middle of 141. He had opened the car door but remained seated inside. Edna? 
She stood at his side, close, her eyes as large and liquid as the rainwater pooled in the yard's stone beds, and her dark hair loosened like an increase of the scented night. He felt as jumbled as a bag of rags. So I'm not actually that wild about that next paragraph, the, the idea of him being jumbled as a, a bag of rags, just because it, it, I think as a metaphor or as a simile, it gets us a bit too far afield. But everything um, before that, this idea of him opening the car door but remaining inside the car. So he's seated and she's standing, which is um, a, a reversal of what they were doing before, where she was kneeling and he was standing and then they both sit. It's also with the door open, it's this kind of liminal space. So liminal spaces, if you ever come across a character in a doorway or in a hallway or um, you know, passing through a, a, an airport terminal, any space where, where there's a lot of um, you know, people moving and a, a space of transition, it can often be a sign that you are meant to see this person as in a big transition. So certainly here with this open door and with her standing there, there, there is a sense of the two of them as being together and yet you have this door that is that is also acting and, and he's he doesn't turn toward her he's like sitting in the car um it doesn't specify so i imagine i in my my mind's eye he is facing like he almost is sort of still about ready to drive away with um you know sitting straight forward but but facing her turning to face her so there's this beautiful um, setting, like the, the way that they are positioned. And then there's also um, the, 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 the eyes. Her eyes are very much like the, the rain that has pooled. Um, and, and when he talks about the stone beds, I think we're supposed to remember the river here. We're supposed to have her eyes and the water there being very much like the river that he has uh, spent the day fishing from. And then, of course, this hair. So she's got, you know, this Harry Mary, this idea of, of the freedom that she has with her hair being uncovered. And it's very feminine. It's long. It's dark. It's curly. Um, so she's got this, um, this loosened hair that is very uh, alluring to him. Okay. And then we're going to move on toward the very, very end of the book. This is now counting as the close of this 30-minute segment because we are looking at the very end of this gorgeous novel. So on 144 here up at the top, emboldened, he said, there's no one in the world but you I wanted to see tonight. Yikes. She did not move. Her eyes remained firmly fastened in the clasp of his own. But on her face, in the moonlight, all that was earlier vivid and venturing dissolved of a sudden into a staying, balanced, and vested look, which held, suspended it, and between them, all the multifarious wonders of impossibility. What a gorgeous passage. So a couple of things. I love that in my copy of the book, and likely your copy, um, this V-E-N here, um, it says all that was earlier vivid and, and it's venturing. I thought it was going to say venal, like a venal sin, like a, like a mortal sin, like a like I think that's I think that's what a venal sin is. I think it's like a bad one, like a sex one. So um, and and that might not be right. Don't quote me on that. Again, not a Catholic. Um, and then, but this this idea of of all of those V's, this vivid and and venturing and vested. So you know you have the vestal virgin. So there is this idea of that vestal virgin thing happening, and just virginal in 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 general, um, which is really important because she is very much this kind of. Mary, she is this virginal uh, celibate creature 
And that is, I'm sure, adding to his desire, this idea of impossibility. And yet, and you have, the, it's this gorgeous ending, the multifarious wonders of impossibility. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, multifarious also has this kind of like a little bit of like a nefarious kind of overtone. It's like, the, it, 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 it's a very it's a big word and it's a word that is that has a root in it that is often you know nefarious is often used as very sort of evil and terrible so there's a lot of risk in this paragraph like with this um venturing that is almost venal and this idea of multifarious which is close to nefarious and impossibility as the last word of the paragraph is absolutely it's damning in some ways um but then this beautiful thing happens where he she she saves him and she saves them both and and it is this kind of um renewal this kind of rejuvenation that her name promised because she's not she's not going to allow him you know a fall from grace and she's not going to allow him you know this this sexual desiring that 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 he i think is also very ambivalent about so he's he's distraught and then on 144 here down toward the bottom could you not come on Monday at tea time? Your duty is permitting, of course. Still watching him. I'll have hot oat cakes. And as he was still silent, she challenged him with, you do like my oat cakes, do you not? You've always said you do. I do, he blurted with the sudden heart of a man who has been long at the oars and sees before him through the mists the post of a mooring. You know I do. So this is a beautiful evocation of the river that he's been on this boat. Um, you know, he's been at the oars and, and, and finally is, is seeing, you know, safe harbor. So we'll leave it stand for Monday. He nodded. Monday, he repeated. And meeting her eyes again, you're to have a good bit of the salmon, of course, which of course is his faith. You know, if we're looking at salmon, both as, you know, his this loaves and fishes, this idea of him being able to, to care for her, um, but it is, and, and, and him as sort of promising afterlife as a Jesus figure, but also um, this idea of his faith, that she, he is reaffirming his faith by mentioning the salmon and then is going to share it with her, which is, you know, what you would hope from a priestly figure. She smiled deeply. It'll be a ravishing treat for me. And I love that because ravishing is so, it's such a um, sexual term, like this idea of being ravished and this ravishing hunger. It's, um, it's the perfect like sublimation really of this kind of ravishing desire that they both are feeling. I mean, she's not having a ravishing desire for him. She's like definitively not, but she's able to talk about instead of sexual ravaging, um, I mean, not ravaging, ravishing. There's this idea of of um, this the salmon, the faith as being what is is sort of um, ravishing for her. She took a step back from the car. He turned the ignition key. Over the engine's mirror, he said, "Thank you." Ah, she augmented the drawing out of the word with a skyward lift of her head. It's as I have said, we're that alike. So good night then, Edna dear. You'll drive carefully, won't you? I will. She livened and teased, for the salmon's sake, of course, but her face was serious. I'll just watch you into the house, he said. She crossed the yard slowly. From the door, she waved. He called out again, good night, Edna, then turned the wheel hard to the right and started off down the track of the moonlit homing lane.
it's so beautiful. So, um, you know, at this very end, we have this idea of these cars, which have been, we didn't even discuss that. The cars are such an important piece of this whole puzzle. Cars being um, something that came up over and over and over again. So he, at the end, is at the wheel. There's a sense of, of, of him as having will and him as having direction. He's turning to the right. So there's this idea of him turning, you know, in the right direction, um, you know, the proper, correct direction. Uh, and, and starting down the track of this moonlit, so the moon should be associated with women. So it's it's this idea of his path as being lit by Edna, lit by this this womanly uh, presence, this moonlit, and then this homing lane. So this idea of homing in on something, this idea of going homeward. Um, again, he's sixty three years old. I think you have this sense of him as as moving toward a home which is in this case like the rectory or the abbey or wherever it is that he lives, which in the past has felt cold and lonely and desperate to him. But you have this idea that because he has this connection now with Edna and because he's had this process of rejuvenation and this reinforcement of his faith and of his life, that, that he will return home to a place that in fact feels much richer. So I hope um, that, that that has been illuminating. And I hope that, um, you know, my argument about the idea of this being about Father Declan, I, I don't in any way want that to detract from the idea that this is also very much Edna's story. But I will um, argue that, you know, not only does the story begin and end with a lot about Father Declan, but he is the character who has that kind of archetypal, um, you know, growth. In the beginning, he's kind of this curmudgeonly, um, you know, spiteful, mean old dude. Although interestingly, that happens after Kevin's, um, you know, he hasn't it, it, it he hasn't been able to fully uh, absorb Edna's story because it's um, you know he's out there fishing and he's testing all of these limits and all of his faith and his sense of mortality. Um, but but then throughout the day and with the catching of the fish, we have you know after he's he's thought about this for for twelve hours or whatever. And then his return to Edna, his acknowledgement of desire that in fact is a, a desire for intimacy, but, but like a conversational intimacy, an intimacy based on understanding and lack of judgment, if that's possible for a priest. But so you have this beautiful sense of, of him as, as in some ways being aligned with the reader who is also very curious, but this sense of, of reinforcement of the possibility, not the impossibility of human connection. It's just gorgeous. So I have to end actually though, not on that note, which would have been gorgeous enough, but I want to end on this quotation that I promised you all that I would read at the very beginning. So this is another thing that um, that Jeanette Hain said um, in the one interview I could find of her. And this just absolutely just, I wanted to save it to the end because it was so inspirational. She says, my life has been nothing but a dawning exercise every day of expectation. I have been continuously so surprised that I am childlike to the point of glee sometimes. So I love that. This is a woman, um, you know, she starts writing when she's 60 years old. This interview was done, you know, in her 70s. But this idea of, of her life, and I think honestly part of the reason why the novel is so gorgeous is because she really does have a lot of life experience. But I love this optimism and this, this idea of glee and this idea of, of being childlike to the point of glee simply because she is alive to the, the, this idea of, of being continuously surprised. And when she says, um, 
my life has been nothing but a dawning exercise every day of expectation. At first, you're sort of like, wait, is this like expectation of herself or that, you know, expectation that others have of her? You're a little like, oh, gosh. But no, it's this idea of expecting wonder and expecting um, surprises. It's just an absolutely beautiful sort of, you know, honestly, it's really good advice. Try this. Try every day to be, um, you know, expecting just just surprises and wonder and trying to be childlike and full of glee. So I just, I found this novel so moving and so beautiful. And it, frankly, it just got more and more beautiful and more moving the, the, the more I dug into it. So I hope that you also enjoyed it. And I hope that uh, these 30 minute uh, deep dives into the text have been helpful. So happy reading. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses, or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There God It's Me Margaret or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.